A professor of mine uh, told a story about one of his professors who was an elderly man, an elderly saint. And uh, so my professor said to this elderly man, just kind of casually, how are you doing? And the elderly man looked at him and responded and said, you know, there are many quitting points along the way, but I'm finding God's grace sufficient. The Christian life knows certainly of joys and peace uh, that, that can be found nowhere else, that are indescribable in many ways. But it's also true that the Christian life is not an easy life. It's not promised to be. The Lord prepared us for that. The Bible is, is clear. Difficulty awaits Christians to one degree or another. It's assured. And some of you here, I know, uh, some of us have felt this very acutely, and maybe even right now, uh, as I talk, as we gather. The church itself, outside of us, through history, and, and now, faces all kinds of different battles and wars within and without difficulty trial. Things may at times seem hopeless at times. The forces of evil just seem maybe too powerful, too intense at times to withstand. The world, as we look around us, can appear like a train that's out of control, it's run away and it's headed for a bridge that's out. The church, often at times, as we look, at least with our eyes, appears to be losing ground, it would seem. But we have the assurance from the scriptures that the Lord himself will build his church. And so the church ultimately will not fail. In Ephesians chapter 4, uh, we learn there about how Jesus has given gifts to his church. And this is one of the ways that he actively sustains and builds his church, by giving gifts to us, by giving gifts to the church. One of the gifts that he has given the church were apostles. And in our text today, as we continue in Luke, we turn to Luke 6, 12. I invite you to open your Bibles to Luke 6, verse 12. And we see in the, these verses, Jesus appoint the twelve, the twelve whom he calls apostles. And this act, as he does this, is an expression of the Lord's faithfulness to his church. He's giving here a gift to his church. And so there's, there's two things that we're going to look at as we go through these verses and the first is this, that Jesus gave apostles to form an important and foundational purpose in the church. That's the first thing we're going to look at. And secondly, Jesus gave ordinary men as apostles to show us that God himself will ultimately be the one to sustain the church. So the apostles, on one hand, they filled a crucial and foundational purpose in the church. They're very important people and figures. And yet on the other hand, their ordinariness, the ordinariness of this group shows us that ultimately it is the Lord himself, it is God who will sustain the church and will bring success to the church. And so I invite you to read with me uh, Luke chapter 6 verse 12 to verse 16. In these days, Jesus went out to the mountain to pray. And all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve, whom he named apostles. 
Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James and John, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. So the first thing we want to just look at is the fact that Jesus gave apostles to form an important and foundational purpose in the church. So we can see the importance of this moment and this event in verse 12. In the fact that Jesus went up on this mountainside to pray, and, and it says he, all night he continued in prayer to God. So here we have Jesus praying. Uh, throughout the book of Luke, as we walk through it, we're going to see this. Uh, Luke emphasizes prayer a lot. He, he talks about, uh, more than any of the other gospel writers, about how Jesus prayed. And, uh, and specifically, he draws our attention to the fact that he prayed before significant moments in his life and ministry. Uh, he's found to be in prayer. And so this is one of those key moments. Uh, and so though prayer is throughout the book of Luke, this is the only place where we're told he stayed up the whole night praying. So this is, this is an important thing. This is a significant moment. So Jesus is in communication with his Father, and he's praying about this. So this shows the... This, this shows us the incredible importance of what's happening here, this moment, of this selection. This would be 12 men chosen for a key foundational role in the church. And this was not something to just be done lightly. And so we, we don't know exactly what it was that Jesus prayed, the words that came out of his mouth. We're not told, we're just told he prayed all night. Likely, he's praying for wisdom. Remember, uh, Jesus, as we've talked about, he's fully God, he's truly God, he's truly man, he's, he's one person, but he has these two natures, a divine nature and a human nature, and we see Jesus often in his human nature, and here he is, uh, praying, staying up for the night, uh, throughout the night, appealing to his Father for wisdom, for help as he makes these decisions. Remember, there were times in his earthly life where he... Uh, did not access his divine nature, and, 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 and there's times where he's said to not know certain things, like uh, the, the, the time, the day, or the hour of his return, and it's Jesus in his human nature, and it's drawing attention to the fact that he was truly human, and here he is uh, appealing to his Father for wisdom, for help, for aid. Likely, he also was praying for the twelve themselves that he would choose. And so this was not a decision that even the Lord Jesus himself went into lightly, since it was so significant. And, and in verse 13, we begin to see why it was that this, this selection was significant. So, uh, we're told uh, that the next day after he'd been in prayer, uh, he summoned his disciples. Now, if you were here, and if you remember from a, a couple of weeks ago, I said that ultimately a disciple is a follower of Jesus, uh, someone that we would today call a Christian. That's who a disciple is. So it was larger than, this group was larger than just the 12 disciples. So some disciples, they physically followed Jesus as they were able to throughout his days as he walked the earth. Uh, and here, the ones that were with him at this time, he calls to himself. He summons this, this, this group 
And then it says he chose from them, from among them, that is from this larger group of disciples, he chose 12 whom he named apostles. So he sets apart 12 here for this special purpose of being apostles. Now Luke doesn't develop right here uh, what exactly their role will be. He doesn't say a lot more, he just says he chose these 12. Though it's clear that these 12 are elevated to some extent here, right? He calls the apostles, he chooses just 12 from out of all, or sorry, he calls the disciples, and he chooses just 12 of them, and he calls them apostles. So he's setting them aside for a special role. And while Luke here doesn't develop it a ton, um, the word apostle itself does uh, tell us some things, which we'll get to in a second, plus of course, we, we, we know more from the rest of Scripture. Uh, as we continue through Luke, we'll find out more about the apostles. Luke also authored the book of Acts, which has a lot to say about the apostles, the acts of the apostles uh, as well. Uh, so uh, there's, there's much more we can say, and we will, about these men and their role and what it will be. So this, this word, first of all, this word apostle, this is a word that is... Uh, just transliterated from the Greek word apostolos, which means basically uh, we've just taken this Greek word and we've just snatched it and we've said it in an English way, in apostle. Uh, so we've just taken this word directly uh, from Greek and it means uh, to be sent out, or in this case it means sent ones in its noun form. It means sent ones. So like a messenger or a delegate it's one who represents another. It can be used in a general way, generically. So an example of that is in Philippians 2.25, where Paul mentions Epaphroditus and calls him a messenger. Uh, and he's specifically a messenger from the Philippian church to himself. Uh, so he's saying uh, there that the Philippians, what they've done is they've sent Epaphroditus as their messenger uh, to Paul to help him with some of his needs and aid him in some things. It's just, it's this word in a general sense. It's a messenger. Epaphroditus was not, he did not have the office of apostle, but he was just a messenger. So uh, your English Bible rightly and helpfully, I think, translates it as messenger. So the Epaphroditus was the Philippian church's messenger to Paul. Um, but here in Luke and in most occurrences of this word in the New Testament, it, is, it has a special connotation, and it's referring to a particular office of the church, a particular gift that Christ gives to the church. These men would not just be any messengers, but ones sent in the power and authority of Jesus Christ himself with unique power and place in the church and in the history of the church. So Ephesians 2.20 gives us, I think, a key uh, statement to help us see this and understand this. So in Ephesians 2, starting in verse 19, uh, Paul writes this, the Apostle Paul writes this, So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, talking to the church, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. So he's talking about the church, that's who the household of God is. Built, the household of God that is, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself, being the cornerstone. So the apostles occupied a uniquely foundational position in the life of the church. 
When a foundation of laid is laid, of course, you know this, you don't need to go relay it. You don't need to go do it again. Right? You just build on top of that. There's just one foundation. You don't need a second one. So this gift of apostle, this is not a repeating one that we see throughout the history of the church. It was a unique thing for these men, for those who were apostles. So again, this special, unique role of these men shows us the importance of this moment. As the Lord is providing for His church, He gave apostles. These were not selected, just nilly-willy, but after a night of prayer, carefully chosen. In John 17, Jesus even, as He's praying to the Father, says, You gave them to me. We see here that Jesus chose 12. He chose 12. This number is significant. Uh, This is evident in the book of Acts. After Judas, which we'll talk more about Judas in a bit, but after Judas hangs himself, after betraying Christ, they need to replace him. They need to restore that number to 12. The number is, it matters. So the number 12 Uh, reveals that Jesus is reconstituting the nation of Israel. He's making a new covenant people. So as there were 12 tribes in the nation of Israel, now there are 12 apostles. So it shows continuity with the old covenant, and yet it is also something that is distinctly new also. But then a question also arises at this number of 12. We know that in Acts chapter 1, Mattathias would replace Judas Iscariot. But we also see clearly that Paul was also an apostle. Right? He's called an apostle. He's, the, uh, he's an, an apostle of Jesus Christ. He appeals to his, this, this reality as a sign of, of his authority at times. Uh, so he's an authoritative apostle. And so this, this raises a question. How, how does this work? There's 12 chosen. The tw- number 12 is important. But then we also see, for example, uh, Paul. And so what do we do? How many are there? So uh, here's how I think that we should understand this. First, uh, there were more than 12 apostles who were authoritative, who had the gift, who were given the gift, were given to the church by Christ. So I've already mentioned Paul. But there are others. So listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 5 uh, and following. He's speaking of Jesus and his appearances after the resurrection. And he says this. And he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. So you have the 12, and then you also have all the apostles as well, which would be redundant if all of the apostles were the exact same group as the 12. So if, if, if so, uh, so, so then, then the question is, okay, who, who are these people? Who else would this be? Paul, who else? Well, in Galatians 1.9, Paul refers to James, the brother of Jesus, as an apostle. He says, I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. 
which would imply that he was also an apostle. Luke himself recounts the importance of James the Apostle in the book of Acts, especially in chapter 15, but beyond that as well. In Acts 14.14, Barnabas is also called an apostle alongside Paul. In fact, Barnabas even has priority of place over Paul initially, just in the way his name comes first. And in in Acts 14.14, they're both referred to as apostles. And in 1 Thessalonians 2.6, which we mentioned uh, briefly when we were in Thessalonians, um, Paul says that he and his co-author Silas were apostles when he says that they could have made demands as apostles. It's not just him. Silas with him is also an apostle. So we have the twelve, we have James, we have Paul, and Silas. Clearly, I would say all called apostles and who possess this gift and this special place, this special authority as such. So first, uh, there are more than 12 authoritative apostles. Uh, but second, I would say that the 12 should be understood as the highest of the 12 or the preeminent of the 12. They're continued to be known as the 12 even, even after there's Paul and other apostles. So this doesn't mean what I, I don't necessarily I don't mean by this that these twelve necessarily had a higher authority or more authority than say Paul. So for example, we see in, in Galatians, Paul says that he rebuked Peter at one point and corrected him, and Peter submitted to that. Uh, so I don't think they this means that the twelve had necessarily a greater authority than the other twelve. But certainly they had a special or a preeminent place as those chosen by Jesus. Early on, so in fact, one of the criteria criterion which the twelve had, uh, which wouldn't apply to Paul and to the other apostles, is found in Acts one twenty one to twenty two, when Judas's replacement is being uh, found. They say it has to be someone who had been with Jesus from the beginning of his earthly ministry, from the beginning of Jesus' baptism with by John. So, so that person, in addition to the other qualifications, which we'll mention in a second, this, this person to replace Judas had to have been there from the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry. And so Mattathias uh, fills this, and uh, he is chosen as this replacement. Additionally, Paul, in contrast to the other apostles and to the twelve, viewed himself as the least of the apostles. So there is a sort of rank of honor, so to speak, among the apostles, though they together play a foundational role in the church. I'll just mention briefly, too, some people think that um, the apostles got ahead of themselves and should not have replaced Judas, and that, in fact, Paul uh, was to be the the twelfth apostle, and they shouldn't have made Mattathias. But there's no, nowhere in Scripture is that decision actually condemned and you still have James called an apostle. You still have Barnabas being... It doesn't, doesn't just get rid of some of the, the problems. So I'd say Mattathias is legitimately one of the twelve. The other qualifications of apostles are found in, in a few places in Scripture. And they are, just briefly, first, they needed to be a witness of the risen Lord. Again, this is one of the reasons why this is not a repeatable uh, office. A repeatable gift. You need to be witness of the risen Lord. Paul says this, 1 Corinthians 9, 1-2. Have I not seen the Lord? He, he witnessed the Lord Jesus risen. 
Uh, Acts one twenty two. when they replace Judas, this is one of the qualifications there. They must be a witness of the resurrection. Secondly, they were to be commissioned by the Lord, specifically Jesus, as his emissary. Again, 1 Corinthians 9, 1 and 2. Thirdly, their ministries were accompanied by miraculous and verifying signs and wonders. So Paul says this, 2 Corinthians 12, 12, uh, he, when he talks about how the marks of a genuine apostle were done in their midst. And he's talking about the miraculous displays of power that accompanied his ministry as he went out. And they were marks of his gen- the fact that he was a genuine, legitimate apostle. And then again, fourth, the qualification for the twelve that I just mentioned, that they needed to be with Jesus from the time of the beginning of his earthly ministry. So, with all of this, we can see that this group of twelve was important. This was an important group, and they were a unique group. This group of apostles would be sent out by Jesus in his authority to preach and teach and to begin building his church. And that's what we see in Acts. They end up fanning out and spreading out, and then the story there focuses, really narrows in on, on, uh, on, on Paul, uh, but we see how they spread out and took the gospel around to the known world at the time. They would write or be the underlying authority behind the teachings of the New Testament. They would pass down doctrine, referred to in Scripture as apostolic tradition, in an authoritative and, and, and loving, that's not, you know, that's not, to, they weren't just heavy-handed, but, but it was authoritatively, they passed down the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. They entrusted it to men like Timothy and others, and, and, and told them to hold tight to this truth. Jesus gave it to us, we pass it on to you, hang on tightly to it, don't give it up. Men will come in and try to corrupt it, don't put up with that, hold tightly to what We, the apostles, have passed down to you the truth that Jesus Christ has come and died for sinners, risen from the dead, and that all men and women everywhere are called to repent of their sins and place their faith in Jesus Christ to be forgiven and to be made right with God and to escape the wrath to come. Hang on tight to this. And so there there is, in, in, in in one sense, a lot riding on this group. You see, this is an important task These men are called to. It's an overwhelming task and a burdensome one. We see this in Paul as he says, as he talks about the daily pressure on him of the churches. All these churches that he has helped to plant and preach the gospel at and appoint elders in, they they weigh on him and he writes to them and we see them in his letters appealing to them. And he's not cold and distant from them. He loves them and he, he desires good for them. And you see this in his writing, and it weighs upon him. He asks, who's sufficient for this? (laughs) He feels his weakness about it. This is a significant task and a heavy one. And the twelve, no doubt, would have felt the exact same along with, with Paul. They were persecuted. They were hated by man. Yet they were called on by Christ Jesus himself to fulfill this role to form this most honorable position in the life of the church. This important role, and so Jesus prayed all night and then made his selection. And so again, this is an expression of the Lord's care for his church. He's given us apostles as a gift. And their teaching remains for us in the words of the New Testament. 
Not everything they taught is found here. Certainly they taught many other things that weren't recorded in Scripture, but, but, but some of it was, and we have those precious truths passed down to us. We also have their examples, especially in the book of Acts, but also uh, in their letters, what we know of them. And they remain as an encouragement to us. And so this, the uniqueness of these apostles and what they've passed down to us is one of the reasons why we preach the scriptures the way we do here. God has given us apostles to lay the foundation of the church. And so we come to their teaching that they've passed down to us, which is the word of God. That was, while, while these men wrote, and we can see their personalities as we read their letters, they were this they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And that ultimately the scriptures are breathed out by God. They are the, the ultimate sources from God. The Spirit himself breathing this out through these men. Using his apostles. And those they passed this message along to. To give us his word. And so we come to his word. And it's God's word. And it's his authority. He is the authority. It's our, the only authority, ultimately, for faith and practice. And so we want to come and try to understand it in its context as best we can. Applying it to our lives as appropriately as we can. Submitting to the apostolic traditions preserved for us here in Scripture. And so there uniqueness is not that hard to see, I don't think, when we consider their role, their foundational role. Again, once a foundation is laid, you don't relay it a second time. And so, I think one application is if you hear somebody claiming to be an apostle today, you should run. Your guard should be up, and you should run from that person. That's a, a fundamental misunderstanding of what an apostle is. And frankly, while... Frankly, it's an arrogant claim to be an apostle. We don't need another foundation than what has been laid. Christ Jesus himself is the cornerstone, and the apostles and prophets is the foundation. The apostles are a gift to the church that continue to give as we open the scriptures, as we read the New Testament, as we hold fast to what they've passed down to us. And as we seek to submit ourselves to the truth of the Bible, and particularly what we find in the New Testament. So Jesus gave apostles to form an important and foundational purpose in the church. But, lest we get too carried away in our admiration of the apostles, lest we elevate them to a position that the beyond what the New Testament states, as some do, including the Roman Catholic Church, claiming that these men have, and other saints, have extra merit that we can have that can help us along in our long process of becoming justified before God. Right? These men don't have that. They don't have any merit that's going to help us be right before God. It's from Jesus Christ alone. So we, lest we exalt them beyond what the scriptures do, verses 14 and 16, 14 through 16, Remind us clearly where the ultimate power and authority lies in maintaining the church. So, point number two, Jesus gave ordinary men as apostles to show us that God himself will ultimately sustain the church. 
So Luke names the apostles in these verses 14 to 16, and it becomes evident that this is an odd selection for such an important task as what we've just described, what we've just seen. And it illustrates to us that this, that the, the cornerstone of the church ultimately is Jesus Christ himself. He is the one who will build his church. He did not leave it behind altogether to these men. Rather, he sent his spirit after he ascended to the Father's right hand, and he continues to build and to strengthen his church. And so we see here these ordinary men. Let's look at this. The first one is Simon, whom he named Peter. We've already seen Simon being called to be a disciple of Christ back in chapter 5. He's the most prominent of the bunch. In every list of apostles and of the twelve, he comes first every time. He's the most prominent of the bunch. In Acts, we see him quite clearly take a lead role, uh, especially at Pentecost. We see him stand up and, and preach a wonderful sermon there. Peter's an interesting character. He clearly loved the Lord. He was a passionate man. And yet sometimes he spoke and acted rashly. He suffered some of the most, most stinging rebukes from the Lord. At one point, Jesus says to him, get behind me, Satan, because he speaks out of place. That's harsh. That's stinging. Ultimate, or, or, uh, in the Lord's most de desperate hour, earthly hour, human hour, as he is being dragged away and, and he's headed to the cross, as he's heading there, Peter would deny the Lord multiple times, three times. But then ultimately... He would repent of this. Jesus would restore him at the end of the Gospel of John. And he would go on to be strong, to be faithful to the end. A man named Origen of Alexandria, writing in the early 3rd century, tells us that Peter, after ministering in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, and Bithynia, getting towards Rome, eventually was crucified upside down in Rome, refusing to die in the same way as his Lord, asking that it be upside down, because not wanting to be crucified like his Lord. We don't know for sure if that's exactly how it happened, if that's true. It's, it's, it's probable, it's very, very probable, certainly possible that that's true. Certainly, I think his, his, it's clear that his martyrdom is alluded to by John near the end of John's Gospel. John wrote much later, towards the end of the first century, than, than, later than the other uh, Gospel writers, and in, in, verse 20, in chapter 21, verse 18 and 19, uh, he, he, Jesus makes this comment about Peter, and it says that he was uh, pre predicting the manner, the, what kind of, by what kind of death Peter would glorify God with. And so there's, there's an indication there in those verses that Peter is going to be uh, killed. He'll be killed unwillingly. And by that I just mean martyred. He willingly went as a martyr, of course. So there's Simon, Simon Peter, that is. Andrew was his brother, Peter's brother, fellow fisherman. And while we don't know as much about him, he was the one who initially took Peter to see Jesus, John 1.42. James and John are listed next. They were both brothers, sons of Zebedee's, Zebedee. They were partners with Peter and Andrew in their fishing industry. 
They were known as sons of thunder. Gives us insight into their personality and what they were like. Their fiery natures. James would be the first of them to be martyred. And this is the only one of them that we find martyred in the pages of Scripture. In Acts chapter 12, verses 1 to 2. And not a lot is said there, remarkably. Simply that Herod Agrippa put him to death with the sword. And after that, a persecution arose. And so in Acts 12, just like that, the apostle James died for his Lord. True to the end. This fisherman, true to the end. And while he didn't go on to preach lots or write books of the Bible, his life and his death continues to preach a magnificent sermon about his Lord. John would suffer much throughout his days, but it's believed likely he died in an old age in a relatively peaceful manner. He would suffer exile on the island of Patmos from which he would write Revelation and actually probably his gospel as well and and, and his other letters that we find in Scripture. We have a gospel, three letters, and the book of Revelation from him preserved for us. Ongoing witness to apostolic tradition to edify and build Christ's church. How many people in history have read John's gospel, have read his words, and have discovered who Jesus Christ is and their need for him, for finding eternal life, who've read the famous, some of the most famous words known to the English-speaking world. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Philip was from Bethsaida, where Peter and Andrew were from. Upon finding Christ in John chapter 1, he immediately went to his friend Nathaniel and brought Nathaniel to Christ as well. Bartholomew, he's not mentioned by name outside of the lists of apostles. He's not mentioned anywhere else in the New Testament. We don't know much about him. Some suggest that Nathaniel, who is mentioned a few times in John with the other disciples, Uh, Some suggest that that's another name for Bartholomew. That's possible. Uh, We can't be certain of that. Matthew, next on the list. Matthew is another name for Levi. This is not uncommon for people to have two names, Simon, Peter, Matthew, Levi. We looked at Matthew's invitation, Levi's invitation to follow Christ uh, last week in chapter 5, verse 27. The Gospel of Matthew explicitly shows us that Levi and Matthew are the same person. He was a notorious sinner uh, whose tax booth was by the Sea of Galilee. Possible that he collected taxes from fishermen, that's likely. Possible he collected them from Peter, Andrew, James, and John. We don't know for sure, but quite possible. Wouldn't that make for an interesting crowd? He's this tax collector who collected from the fishermen and them together in this group of the twelve. Matthew would go on to compile an account of Jesus' life and leave behind the gospel according to Matthew. There are conflicting reports about his death. Uh, He may very well have been martyred in Ethiopia, preaching the gospel. Thomas is next. He's called by John also the twin. He's often known as Doubting Thomas. Unfortunate for him, uh, because of his doubts about the resurrection of Christ, 
But, as much as he gets that, and we might think, oh, Thomas, doubter, doubter that he was, uh, upon seeing the risen Christ and seeing his wounds, he fell down at his feet and worshipped him and declared him to be his Lord and his God. Again, tradition says he went off to India preaching the gospel, where it's probable he likewise died as a martyr. In fact, there's, uh, there are Christians today in India, I don't know anything about this group or how legitimate their claim is, but who claim their descent comes ultimately from Thomas and his preaching the gospel there. James, who here is referred to as the son of Alphaeus, so as to be distinct, distinguished from the other well-known Jameses, Little is known of him other than he, that he, uh, he, we know he might have been the brother of, of Matthew, of Levi. Uh, Mark 2.14, Levi is also called the son of Alphaeus. They may have been brothers. Simon, next, who is called the Zealot, to be distinguished from Simon Peter. The Zealots were a group of zealous men who were zealous for the Torah and desired to militaristically overthrow the Roman uh, authorities. They had a mixture of religious and political zeal, and they reached their preeminence ultimately in a revolt that they helped lead against Rome, which was squashed uh, later between 66 and 70 AD. And so Simon had been, this Simon had been identified with this group uh, earlier in their formation and earlier in their days prior to him becoming a disciple of Christ. Judas, then, uh, son of James, Next on the list, he's called by Mark and Matthew Thaddeus, a different name. Again, it's not common, or it's not uncommon, that uh, someone would have two names. And if you were named Judas, uh, there's good reason why you might want to go by your other name. Uh, if you are not Judas Iscariot, that name pretty quickly gets identified with, uh, with being a traitor. And for the same reason, none of our children are named Judas. Uh, he might have preferred Thaddeus, and that may have been why Matthew and Mark called him that. These 11 men, as you can see, were a strange mix, if you think of it. They were not the top leaders in Israel in the day. They were not the most educated. They were certainly not the most respected. They were not the famous person whom you would want to call out to to have lead your charge, lead a, a movement, a religion, whatever, the, the, the leaders of the new covenant, the foundation of the church. They were in many, many ways very ordinary people. And in the case of Matthew, even a notorious sinner, a tax collector. So we've got fishermen, tax collector, zealot. Others, we don't really know much about their background. Quite a mix. These men would very, very clearly, especially as we follow them through the Gospels and see their blunders and errors, and men like Peter put their foot in their mouth at times, they would clearly need God to guide them, to sanctify them, to empower them for fruitful ministry. The twelfth man on this list, Judas Iscariot. Why he is chosen can be confusing. I think it's valid to ask, why is he chosen? Jesus prays all night, this is important, and he chooses Judas Iscariot. What's the purpose? The answer, I would suggest, further points to the need for the Lord to be the one to preserve his church. 
So Judas serves as both a warning to us, but also as an encouragement to us. So uh, John Calvin, the reformer John Calvin, when he, on his, uh, in his commentary on this text, uh, says a few things that I think are helpful. He says this, Our Lord expressly intended to prevent future offenses that we may not feel excessive uneasiness when unprincipled men occupy the situation of teachers in the church or when professors of the gospel become apostates. He gave at the same time here, in the person of one man, Judas, an instance of fearful defection that those who occupy a higher rank may not indulge in self-complacency. So he's saying it's a warning if you are in a what he calls a higher place. In other words, a more prominent place where people are going to notice you, a pastor is basically what he's saying. It's a warning to not get lazy, even if you fulfill or in such a role. Don't be so assumed, don't just assume that all is well with your soul, but not, and not to be uh, lazy about it or get complacent. It's also not to cause alarm if we look out and see such people in such places within the church defect from the faith. So basically, if Judas can spend time, three years plus, face to face with Jesus, the Lord himself, and yet go on to betray him, it can happen to those who profess faith anywhere. And, it, and it's, little, it, it's to be to us less shocking when we see it happen, because we see it happen right here, even one of the original 12 that was chosen by Jesus. Calvin goes on and adds, at the very beginning, meaning when, when, when Jesus chooses these 12, in the life of the 12, at the very beginning, it was judged proper to give an early demonstration of the future state of the church, that weak persons might not stumble on account of the fall of a reprobate. For it is not proper that the stability of the church should depend on men. So you see that? We should not stumble when men fall, because the church doesn't depend ultimately on men, but the Lord. So we've seen this. We've seen people who profess to be Christians and then they fall off the rails. Sometimes they fulfill prominent positions. They lead ministry organizations. They were pastors or pastors at one time or just seeming pillars of their community and all of a sudden they're just gone. They've deserted the Lord. They've abandoned Him. They leave their family, whatever it might be. A massive fall and it's a shock and we feel ourselves shake and we feel our faith rattled and what Calvin's saying here is that Judas is an example that shows us that we should not be overly rattled and, and, and abandon the faith when we see this happen because right from the beginning it happened and it shows us that ultimately the church does not rely on men but on God. One last quote from, from Calvin. He says, Christ did not prefer Judas to devout and holy disciples, but raised him to an eminence from which he would, was afterwards to fall, and thus intended to make him an example and instruction to men of every condition and of every age that no one may abuse the honor which God has conferred upon him. And likewise that when even the pillars fall, those who appear to be the weakest of believers may remain steady. Perhaps you've felt that 
well, if, if that person fell and they seem to know so much, what hope have I? Well, even Judas fell. And it's an illustration and a reminder to us that the success of the church ultimately is not in man. Even one of the original twelve fell, and yet the church was launched. We see in the apostles that ultimately the survival of the church depends on God himself. Jesus himself remains the only cornerstone. Without him, the the whole foundation of the church falls. So when when Ephesians 2.20 that I read earlier, when, when Paul says that the apostles and prophets are the foundation of the church, he says Christ Jesus himself is the cornerstone, the most important stone of that foundation. If that stone's gone, that foundation crumbles. He is ultimately, Jesus is ultimately, the church's one foundation. Paul says that clearly again elsewhere in 1 Corinthians. Uh, He says there that uh, there's, there's one foundation ultimately of the church and it's Jesus Christ. So we see elsewhere apostles are called foundation, but then Jesus is called foundation. The point of all of that is to say Jesus is ultimately what underlies the church. And on top of that, we have the apostles and prophets, and, and we build on top of, of all of that. And the church is built on top of all of that. Christ himself, underneath it all, even the apostles, as important as they are. Nobody would pick the twelve that he did. None of us would. Don't pretend you would. He did this to reveal his own power and might. The wisdom of God seems like folly to the world. And so God, in his wisdom, condemns man's pride and man's wisdom as actually being folly by operating in a way that we would never. The gospel itself is a demonstration of this. That God would send his son, that the Savior would be one who was lifted up on a cross and crucified for the sins of the world. died, rose again from the dead. And so, the fact that he used this group should be encouraging to us in a a couple of ways. First, we, here, at Gospel Grace Fellowship, are nothing in the eyes of the world. We're not an impressive lot, really. I'm not, no offense, I, 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 first, or lowest, whatever, uh, first of the nothings. (laughs) And of course, we, we should not desire to give the world around us any reason to despise us through sinful behavior or anything like that. But the fact that we're not viewed as much, we don't own a building, I mean, we're, not that, we're really nothing, we're not that impressive. But this is okay. This is okay. God uses the foolish of the world to shame the wise. We have with us the, the, the teaching that the Lord Jesus has left behind, the gospel message, the message that the world needs. And though we are nothing, our God is everything. And he has the power to do what he wills and to draw many to himself. And so let's call to God for his power to save, to save others, to use us such that we are in this city, in this province and beyond. Let's find encouragement as we look at the ordinary apostles 
whom God used in magnificent ways. And while we are not apostles, we are God's children if we're trusting in Christ. We are his servants. So I think this can be encouraging to us in that way. Secondly, as we see churches and professing Christians falling away, as we see them abandoning the gospel, as we see them doing everything except opening the word and proclaiming it, busy with all kinds of other things, not holding fast to the scriptures, to what the apostles have passed down, not doing what Paul told Timothy to do, to hold fast to it and to preach the word in season and out of season. As we look around and see this and we get frustrated, we get discouraged, we think this is, for, this is a loss, what hope is there, who are we, other churches are abandoning this truth. Let us remember that the ultimate power for perseverance the ultimate power for the triumph of the church is that God himself will sustain it. This is true of us. It's true of the church universal. It's true of us as individuals. Our hope to get to the end of all of this, standing, to persevere to the end, is that Jesus will remain faithful, that God will not abandon us. And that nobody and nothing can snatch us out of Christ's hand. So there's tremendous hope in this. If all is not lost, though other churches may walk away, though the world presses in and seems to get darker all around us, it's the Lord who builds His church. And it's the Lord Jesus who says that the gates of hell will not prevail. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail. So Jesus' choosing of the twelve demonstrates for us the importance of their role as foundational gifts to the church whose ministries continue to bear fruit as the New Testament continues to be read and as the Lord uses it to open eyes and minister to his people. But his choosing of the twelve also reveals to us that the power of of God is what ultimately sustains the church as the disciples were really an unideal lot and even included a traitor. The church has been ever since then the church militant fighting battles waging spiritual wars, standing in the armor of Christ, and we take up arms in that battle likewise and continue to move forward. We do that even now. And this is not for the faint of heart. It is difficult. Life is hard. You will be persecuted. Jesus said, Paul says, anyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Jesus tells us to count the cost. It will cost us. It's not for the faint of heart. It is hard. We don't know what the Lord will do in our midst. He may open the floodgates, pour out His Spirit, and people will get saved, and it will be wonderful. And He may not. It could be us trudging along together till the end. And if so, hallelujah. But because the Lord is powerful, we continue to call out to Him that He would be gracious to those around us. 
We don't lose heart, though we feel inadequate. Though we feel perhaps the weight of this. And one day, we will be the church victorious. The church at rest. Not because we are perfect, not because we are so wonderful in and of ourselves, but because the Lord Jesus is faithful and says he will finish what he begins. He says he will return and save his people. So again, it's Christ Jesus that we need. He is faithful. Let's keep our eyes fixed on him. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, again, we come to you needy, desperately needy for your help. And God, we are thankful that you are powerful and able and mighty to help us, that you bid us to come through Jesus Christ to approach your throne of grace, to find help in our time of need. Thank you, God, for the gift of the apostles. Thank you that we have their teaching left behind Thank you for not leaving us without this wonderful truth, for not leaving us in darkness. And God, we pray that this light of your word would spread out, that many in this town would believe, that your churches would proclaim the wonderful good news of the risen Lord Jesus, who died to save sinners. God, I pray you'd sustain us that you'd use us such that we are and we feel our weakness and our inadequacy. And so we call out to you, Lord, to be powerful in our midst, to sanctify us, to, to purify our own hearts and to draw others to yourself. God, we thank you for your word. Thank you for sustaining us. We pray you'd bless the rest of our time together in fellowship. In Jesus' name, amen.